Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isman Javori. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. This episode's guest is Jason Hetler from Altus. Jason is the lead strength and power coach at Altus. Jay holds a bachelor's in exercise science from Grand Valley State University. Jay's previous experience includes work within the Olympic strength and conditioning department at Western Michigan University. And you can connect with Jay on Twitter. His handle is in the show notes. 
and check him out on his website, Hetler Performance, which is also linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Jay and I discussed many, many topics, including, of course, Jay's background and his influences. What are the good and not so good things that Jay currently sees within the physical preparation profession? And uh, what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he's seen? Jay tells us about his training philosophy for elite track athletes. Jay discusses how they use zonal intensities within the strength and power training of the athletes at Altus and how the zones of intensities are matched up with compatible training components from the track. Jay shares with us the training system he utilizes at Altus and gives us an in-depth insight into the micro and mesocycle setup they utilize at Altus. Jay gives us his thoughts on hypertrophy training for track athletes. Jay discusses the importance of executing isometric and eccentric muscular regimes within the weight room. Jay discusses the difference in his coaching style when it comes to coaching speed development with team sport athletes versus elite sprinters. Jay gives us an insight as to why they utilize the hanging band technique at Altus. Jay gives us his thoughts on Olympic lifting variations with track athletes. Jay tells us how they've applied some of Franz Bosch's concepts into the training schemes of their athletes. Jay discusses how he structures his weight room warm-ups for the athletes after they've come from a track session. Jay shares his thoughts on the main differences in the weight room between male and female athletes. Jay discusses how the concept of projection, rhythm and rise really helped him develop as a sprint coach. Jay fills us in on how they are utilizing the 1080 sprint at Altus and where it fits into their athletes' training programs. Jay and I discuss common differences seen between track and team sport athletes' acceleration profiles, as well as the difference between male and female track athletes' acceleration profiles. Jay shares with us his biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career in life. Jay shares his top resources and advice to all of the listeners. And finally, if Jay could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Jay, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Jason Hetler, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on to my podcast, sir. Uh, Jay, just for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on the background. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll start with, I appreciate you having me, man. I've been waiting for the phone call for, for about a year now, so I'm glad it finally came. The, the, money, the money and the check are in the post. <laughs> All right, perfect. I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm a strength and power coach with Altus. Altus is uh, elite track and field training center in Phoenix, Arizona, United States, working with mostly sprinters and hurdlers, um, both short and long, so anywhere from 100 meter to 400 meter. We also have a, a mid-distance group and a couple of jumpers mixed in, so it's quite a it's quite a group, uh, multinational representing uh, anywhere from, I think, 8 to 12 different countries at any given point. We've got some people that come in and out. But my my role then with Altus is, as the title of Strength and Power, it's, it's mostly, and it began entirely in the weight room. Now it's kind of progressed a bit into leading a small group of sprinters on the track as well. And there's some additional responsibilities, including uh, a, a little bit on the media marketing side, as well as some internship coordination and uh, content development. I'll tell you what I'll do too in the show notes. I'll, I'll going to start linking up some of the recent articles you put out because, as I said to you before we hopped online, 
I think that the recent articles you've, you've put out lately have been fantastic. Um, I've totally enjoyed reading them. And, uh, particularly the one where you, you're kind of talking about keeping us updated on your, your 1080 sprints sort of project. So I'm looking forward to seeing the, the future article series and that. And we'll, we'll talk about 1080 later on. But uh, before we go any further, like, what got you into wanting to be a... I know you said your title is Strength and Power, but I suppose you know, some people say a Strength and Condition Coach, Physical Preparation Coach. But like, when did that light bulb moment go off? Like, were you, did you know from a young age or was it kind of something you fell into later on? How, like, what got you into uh, strength and conditioning and, and to where you are right now as a strength and power coach at Altus? Yeah, I, I fell into it a little bit later on. So I started university uh, with a finance degree. Um, I always had it in my head that I wanted to serve people, help people in, in one way or another. And I originally thought that was, the avenue for that was going to be personal financial advising. Uh, so I spent a couple years at university pursuing that degree. I uh, worked three years in an accounting office. And after three years in, in front of a computer screen with four, four walls around me, I realized that maybe there's some other options to, uh, to serve people. And then, and then the strategy piece was always a big part of it for me as well. So I, I thought it was strategizing around putting portfolios together, whatever that might be. Uh, but I soon realized that I'd rather strategize around sport performance and I'd rather get outside and, and be a little bit more active, be a little bit more engaged. I've always been a huge fan of sport, all sport. And, and when I couldn't shake that well enough and I couldn't get too passionate about the finance or the accounting, I decided to go ahead and make the shift. So that was about midway through university. I switched over to an exercise science degree. Uh, still not entirely sure what I wanted to do with it. But I sort of settled on strength and conditioning because I knew I wanted the diversity of, of the opportunity to work with any athlete from any sport at any level. And I, and I mm. felt that, that pursuing a, a career in strength and conditioning would allow me the, the more opportunity to do that. What university did you go to, Jay? Grand Valley State. It's a, it's a Division II school in Michigan. That, that's where you're from, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. Uh, in terms of your your biggest influences, uh, Jay, um, uh, it's a question I always love asking uh, every individual that comes on to the show. But who would you say have been your biggest influences on you, not only professionally but but also personally? And, and even if the same individual has been an impact on both professional and personal, but uh, who would you say have been your biggest influences? Yeah, well, I'll start with with the staff at Altus. Um, you know, when I first came here, I came here as an intern four years ago. Uh, and I came as a pretty blank slate, so I didn't know, as I mentioned, like my whole life, anything close to that, that I wanted to go into this field. So I, I spent a lot of years, you know, learning and educating myself on in other realms. So when I came here as a blank slate, it was my learning just expedited from from Dan Pass, Jim McMillan, and Andreas Bem. They were the staples at the time when I came. Now we've added Kevin Tyler, and so I'll throw him into the mix as well. But just just from from a performance side of things, those individuals, uh, whether it be weight room, track, the, the multitude of experiences that they have has been profoundly influential. Uh, and then the network that I've been able to expose, that I've been exposed to through them, uh, one that comes to mind is, is Matt Jordan up in Canada. Mm. I, think, I think he does a phenomenal job of, of the art and the science of coaching, which is, uh, I know, a topic that gets talked about a lot. 
But with Altus, we don't have much of a budget or the resources for a, for a large sports science department. So it's been really great to to be exposed to Matt Jordan and CSI Calgary and the work they're doing up there. Um, been able to make a few trips up there and and kind of see how they operate with a, a bit more of a budget, a bit more resources, uh, and a whole lot more sports science than what we do here. So that's that's been able to give me a, quite a nice mix. Um, from from more on the personal side of thing, uh, I really just turned to my family. I've I've, I've got a fairly large family. Um, my dad comes from a big family, so aunts and uncles, cousins, brothers and sisters. Uh, there's there's some really good people in there, and so a, a lot of what I try to do is is aimed at making them proud and, and trying to be the best person I can be to to fit in with a pretty solid family foundation. That's great to hear, man. That's just really great stuff. And just uh, it's it's not a question I had planned, but kind of just going off the back of that answer, how did you? Because I guess I, I'm someone who who's done a lot of traveling and spent a lot of time away from family how did how did you find you know moving away from your family because i mean it was a pretty big move to go from from where you're from to you know ship up and pack and, and you know start a new life down in phoenix how did you find that transition yeah to be honest and, and I, it may sound surprising after i just said some nice words about the family in general um it was quite easy mm. i i knew without a doubt that that it was what I wanted to do, and I was extremely excited about it. Uh, I knew there wasn't a lot of opportunity, per se, to to maybe reach the level that I want to reach in, in small-town Michigan, where I came from, Yeah. Uh, and, and I was ready for a change. So it gets tough. It gets tougher now as we go on, and, and uh, my sisters are starting to have kids, so I've got nieces and nephews back home. Um, they, they don't know me too well. So I, I try to get them out here as much as possible and head back as much as possible. But, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was fairly easy because I knew that this is where I wanted to be, at least at least for the time being. The, 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 your nieces and nephews, they must be wondering who this nicely tanned uncle is coming back. Why is he so brown? Why, why aren't you guys like that? <laughs> they, they get a little confused around, uh, around Christmas time when I come home in the winter. And then I also I have a twin brother, so they get confused – uh, the first couple of times with that because they're used to seeing him. He lives very close to all to all the rest of them, and so all of a sudden there's there's two guys that look exactly the same, and, and they're not quite sure what's going on at first. Oh my god! Actually, I never knew that yet. It's twin brother. That's amazing. And uh, and is is your twin brother like? Is he like really pasty white compared to you now? <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely through the winter months at least he is. Uh, he, <laughs> he usually tries to get into Phoenix at least once or twice a year though, so he gets a little sunshine then. You could just imagine you, you two guys going to the doctors like, you guys might be identical twins, but your vitamin D definitely does not see, see, seem to say the same thing. But, uh, that, that's great, man. That's great. So uh, and just going off, I actually didn't know you went up to um, Matt Jordan. Uh, that's, that's amazing. That must be a great experience. And just for the, for the listeners, too, there's some fantastic um, presentations by Matt on the 360 platform. So if people really want to see more stuff from Matt Jordan, that's a, that's a great place to check out some more information from him. Yeah, the, the 360 is a great idea, and they also offer a uh, strength and power course in Calgary um, that I was able to attend. So I, I don't know the dates and what they have coming up with that, but it's I, I definitely recommend it. Definitely, definitely, and uh, I'll put all that in the show notes to the 360 and also Matt's, Matt's course as well. So Jay, uh, another question I ask every guest that comes on, and you know, eager to get your thoughts on this. In, in terms of the good and then the not-so-good things that you currently see within the 
you know, strength and conditioning, physical preparation, sports performance, profession, whatever title you want to give it there. What are the good and not so good things that you're seeing? And then with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, well, I'll start, I'll start with kind of social media and, and the technolo technological age as, as an answer for both. You know, it's, I think it's great and, and at times can be bad because it's hard to separate the cream from the crop and figure out what, what you should be listening to and reading and, and what maybe uh, you shouldn't. And maybe I sound hypocritical because I'm starting to pull out articles and different things out. But it, and I appreciate that, it, that there's a platform for anybody and everybody to have a voice. But I know that, you know, coming up in the field, it can be tough yeah. and it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And I'm overwhelmed. My reading list is, is growing by the minute and I can't stay on top of it. Um, so good and bad there. But off of that, I think it really seems to be, I'm kind of answering this through a lens of starting to do some work with Major League Baseball. Phoenix is a bit of a hub for half the half or half of the league for part of the year uh, with spring training. And so I've been exposed to a lot of that environment as well. And a few different in, in Phoenix being a pretty large city. And it seems that there's become a lot of collaboration through different SNC departments or individuals around the city, around the country, probably around the world as well. But it still seems that there's some disconnect uh, between professions in terms of strength coaches, athletic trainers, physios, sport coaches. So I'm still seeing the, the difficulties that a lot of groups are having with integrating uh, a multidisciplinary team. And, and that's some conversations I just had yesterday with a few clubs that I've been visiting. And, and there's still that disconnect. As far as solutions to that, that becomes a problem. That's what a lot of uh, questions that we get at Altus, because I think we do a pretty good job of integrating uh, what we call the performance trinity, so athlete, coach, uh, and therapist. And that includes both sport coach and, and S&C. Uh, and, and the big piece of it is speaking the same language. So one recommendation that I've made, and, and a few groups are going to start doing this now, is, is each of those different subgroups, we'll say, uh, physios, whatever department it may be, sports science, sport coaches, put together a glossary of terms. And it's going to be kind of just basic terms that they need the other groups to understand so that they can have a good conversation with each other. So maybe that's the difference between tightness and soreness and fatigue and eccentric muscle contractions and concentric and isometric, whatever, whatever language they like to speak and whatever fits into their philosophy. They'll put together a glossary of terms all the groups will combine it, and then they can hopefully start speaking the same language from there. So that, that may be one small potential solution for some groups. Uh, some groups it may not work at all. Some may think it's a dumb idea. But uh, any way to, to integrate all those teams, I think, is still the direction that we need to go. Great stuff. So, Jay, if I was to ask you, what is your philosophy when it comes to strength and power development with – track and field athletes, how would you answer that question? And uh, you, by the way, you can, you can go as long as you want with this, so uh, you can get as in detail as you want. Yeah, well, we'll see where it goes. But um, So I'll, I'll start through the lens of kind of the elite track and field, since that's where I'm at right now. And, and it really starts with the, it's supplemental in nature. So for at a lot of levels, simply getting stronger, more powerful will – produce an increase in velocity for many individuals. 
The sprint times will be better. They'll reach greater speeds. That's not necessarily the case with, with our population here. The athletes that come to us uh, are typically all post-collegiate, and they're all quite established or, or getting there within the sport. And so simply getting them stronger isn't going to make a, a very profound difference to their performance. They've already had uh, great strength abilities. They're, they're quite well-versed in the weight room. They may not be the greatest movers, but, but their outputs are, are pretty impressive in the weight room. And so the big thing with strength and power at this level is that we make sure it doesn't negatively transfer, negatively interfere with any of the sessions that occur on the track. Mm. A big part of our philosophy on the track is quality. And so if we have some fatigue coming over from the weight room that's going to affect the quality of those track sessions, then things aren't really lining up the way that we'd like to see them. So it's a matter of structuring anything that we do in the weight room around those big days on the track. And we'll, we'll find time to get it in when we can. And we'll just be very, very particular with how we do that. Now, I don't want that to sound like we don't do any max strength work or, or that we don't do anything in the weight room because we'll still put these guys through some loads. They need to be able to absorb mostly the, the forces that they're going to experience, the ground reaction forces as they sprint, which can be quite profound. So, so we'll still do some, some heavy lifting, and we're still in the weight room uh, for most of the year, four days a week. We're just very particular with how we structure that and where we structure that. Could you maybe uh, get into um, the the zones that you use to prescribe your strength work, your strength and power work, and also maybe how you complement the zonal work with the work you're also doing out on the track? Um, and um, actually, yeah, and, I'll, and I'll save the next part of the question then for when you have that done. Yeah, definitely. Um, so essentially all the loading parameters that, that we'll use in the weight room fall into a zonal categorization, uh, which, which is really adapted from Zatsior's effort, max effort, and repeated effort. And we've just kind of used slightly different terminology to, with the idea of hope, hoping that that's a little bit easier for the athletes to hold on to and understand. Uh, the reason that we categorize is, uh, is really twofold, and this is something that Stu McMillan talks about in the foundation course, which is to reduce complexity and add meaning. So our thought is by, by simplifying it down to zone one, two, and three, when the athlete will see that on their training cycle and on their program for any given day, they'll come in and it will reduce the complexity of, of understanding what they need to do and add meaning to what they need to do. So if they see zone one, for instance, on their workout for the day, they know this is dynamic effort. This is about velocity. So my intent is to move the bar as fast as I can. They see zone two, they know it's repeated effort. It's a little bit more of a work capacity type focus. So it's not necessarily about the load that's on the bar or the velocity, but they're trying to get a decent amount of work in and, and potentially a short amount of time. And then so zone three for us is max strength. They come in, they see that on their program, they know, all right, it's time to load the bar up. Uh, I, may, I may be taking a few extra warm-up sets here to get up to 85% and higher. Uh, and then I'll start counting my working sets and, and really try to move some load. So I, I, and that's what I really like it for. They, they come in, they see it, they understand it over time after we educate a few times on, on what the zones mean, and then they can get on with it and they can have some intention with what they're doing. And, and I think we can all realize and understand and see the importance of, of an athlete having intention when they're going through any movement, especially in the weight room. 
could you maybe give uh, the listeners the sort of um, mesocycle setup that you guys have uh, at Altus? So, you know, you have your three-week block and maybe just talk about the team of each week and then maybe from that get into the, the micro structure of the actual week itself in terms of, again, what you guys are doing on the track, doing the weight room, and maybe as well how that might change from um, the time of the year from maybe more of the preparatory phase into... Sorry, from the from the general preparatory phase into more of a, a specific preparatory phase. Um, so just to recap that question, just because it was a lot. So maybe speak about your three-week mesocycle and then what each one of those weeks is made up of, so the microcycle, and then how that would change in terms of structure from uh, certain times time periods of the year. Yeah, definitely. So our, our three-week mesocycles, um, again, we'll, we'll sort of categorize each week within that. Uh, that third week is a bit of a rest week, uh, regeneration type week. We don't really adjust any volume or density. We, we may at times, uh, but we're a little bit locked in with adaptation that we're looking for, particularly on the track. It's, it's tough to accelerate with quality at a low intensity. Mm. And so, so our, our metric of choice then to allow for that, that rest week uh, and that deload is density. So it'll just be a couple extra days off. Back to the categorization of each week. If we look at those three weeks, week one, we term introduction, week two, exploration, and then week three, stabilization. And so we're introducing potentially new concepts within a new mesocycle. We'll introduce that into week one. There'll be a lot of coach feedback. It'll be very coach-driven and, and just trying to elicit a certain level of understanding within the athlete for whatever those elements or concepts may be. Week two, then, is exploration. So We'll slightly back off. It's a little more coach and athlete driven on that second week. Um, and, we, and we really want the athlete taking a little bit more ownership and a little bit of, uh, again, just exploration and experimentation within those concepts and elements. Week three to, again, allow for that, that deload. Uh, as a coaching staff, we really back off with our cueing. It's much more targeted, much more specific, and, and slightly less in frequency as well. Um, just as a way to factor in the cognitive load that we put on the athletes. Obviously, the, the body doesn't necessarily determine between specific stressors, and every load that comes into to the athlete matters, including what we say to them and how we say it. So we try to be very mindful of that and, and back off slightly on the week three. And even though we call that week three a stabilization, we realize that there's a small chance that, that any given athlete is going to stabilize a new concept within a couple of weeks. Um, but it really just helps to lay out the structure and it helps to guide sort of how we'll approach that from a staff. Uh, and then it gives the athletes an understanding as well. So, so we inform them of how we're categorizing these weeks so that they can begin to understand it so that they don't come into a week three and, and all of a sudden coach isn't saying a whole lot and they think that that's because they're lazy or not watching or whatever it may be or they're saying something to somebody else and not to them and, and some feelings get hurt at times. Mm. So as much why we structure that way, then it, it usually allows for it to go fairly smoothly. Breaking the, the three-week cycle down into one week um, and, and sort of matching that with the work we do in the weight room. Uh, so to start the week off, it's typically, and again, it kind of depends on the time of year, but for most people, most of the time, at least our short sprinters, Monday is, is what we term a potentiation and preparation day. Coming off a day off on Sunday, it's, it can be tough to get the high-quality movement that we're looking for 
uh, with these athletes. They, they typically will completely shut down on a Sunday. A lot of them will play video games for probably 10 hours on Sunday. <laughs> and so to get them up and moving and get that quality on the Monday becomes tough. So in, in, in a sense, our Monday is designed around just getting the athlete uh, feeling good for Tuesday. So potentiation and preparation is very uh, concentric focused. So in the weight room, that might be some Olympic lifting or some bottom-up lifting off of the safety racks. Uh, it could be some skips and bounds on the track. We really begin to individualize that through the year just by communicating with the athletes uh, on different elements that will have them feeling good for that next day. That next day, that all-important day on the Tuesday is, is acceleration for us. It's a big part of our philosophy. Acceleration is, is very much a skill, and it's very important to set up any race. Uh, so we try to hit that early in the week when the athlete is, is feeling nice off the Monday and, and still relatively fresh. So with acceleration, we like to match, match that with maximum strength or zone three work in the weight room. It allows the athlete to bring a, a somewhat similar idea and somewhat similar mindset. Uh, acceleration is very aggressive in nature and it's uh, at times violent. And so if they can kind of hang on to those ideas and those themes, bring it into the weight room with them, and go after some max strength loading, it typically works pretty well. And so with that being a big day, then Wednesday is a recovery day. So depending on the time of year, that's, that may be active, that may be passive. For a lot of the year, for most individuals, it is fairly active. So there's mobility, stability, uh, potentially some tempo or work capacity involved with that as well. That's when we like to work on some breathing and, and different aspects, um, some trunk work, core stability, whatever it may be. Coming off that into a Thursday, uh, typically be a bit more of a speed day on the track. And so that matches really well with zone one in the weight room. So zone one, again, is a dynamic effort. It's all about the velocity of the movement or the barbell. Uh, Friday then becomes, with some residual fatigue through the week, another active recovery or passive recovery day to allow for our next uh, real big day on the track being Saturday bit more of a speed endurance session, um, special endurance, whatever it may be, depending on the time of year, but a little bit more volume on the Saturday, which will, again, pair really well with zone two in the weight room, which is the repeated effort or work capacity type focus. Uh, and then we just have to be particular with that, that we try to limit any any potential for hypertrophy, uh, obviously contraindicated for our population. So it's something that we try to avoid. Could, we'll still could you could, could you speak a more into that, Jason? Because I know that there might be some younger coaches uh, or less experienced, and, and they might be asking why that might be a contraindication. Yeah, essentially, uh, if you look at you know force equals mass times acceleration, we're just trying to keep the body mass as low as possible, mm -hmm. keep the acceleration as high as possible. Mm -hmm. um, there might be there, all, there might be also a fear too of like pinnation angle changes, isn't there? Like you know, it could slow down muscle shortening velocity, and there's that kind of concept too. But obviously, the big one is mass increasing. Yeah, exactly. Um, quite simply, it comes down to that body mass, and and all things being equal, which they never are, but if for some reason they were, the lighter athlete is going to be in, in better shape than the heavier athlete. Mm. And I realize that there's different athlete types and, and some can handle a little bit more weight better because they're a little bit more powerful. Uh, some of the more elastic greyhound types um, is, is maybe a different story, but just trying to be, be conscious of, of body mass and, and try not to put on any extra muscle mass on these individuals. 
for most of them, at least. That's that's at least ninety five percent of our yeah. population. Yeah, definitely. Um, listen, that fantastic breakdown of the meso and macro cycle. Um, and kind of getting in a little more deeper into that, if we want to break down a little further, looking into the actual makeup of the sessions within the gym, one thing that I really took away from my time at Altus was how little uh, emphasis I had been putting on isometric and eccentric work within the weight room with my athletes, and I suppose how biased a lot of coaches are to just purely concentric dominated lifts, or I suppose really they're isotonic versus in it's, it's you know eccentric and then followed by the concept, you know, your traditional sort of barbell, as you see. Um, but you guys seem to put, like, a, a big sort of onus and emphasis on really sort of specific strength training for the actual environment that the muscle is going to experience out on the track. So, like, you guys are doing, like, a lot of isometric work for the hamstrings. Uh, there was a lot of reflective eccentrics. Can you maybe just speak to speak to those, Jay? Like, why you, why you guys feel they're, they're so important and maybe how how or what particular exercises you use to sort of get those adaptations yeah so I'll, I'll start with just a little bit of the why behind it um if we look at at sprinting we look at 100 meters essentially every step other than that first initial impulse out of the blocks is going to be well anytime they, they generate force is preceded by their ability to absorb force mm-hmm. so they need to and I, and I briefly touched on it earlier, but have the ability to absorb the, the ground reaction forces that they're experiencing yeah. anywhere from three to five times body weight, sometimes a little bit greater than that. And so if they can't optimally absorb that force, it, it doesn't really matter what kind of force they can generate thereafter because they've already, they've already lost the race. Yeah. They're, already, they're already spending too much time on the ground, amortizing too much, whatever it may be, having trouble with a lot of aspects by not being able to absorb that force. Uh, and then additionally with our population, the posterior chain is obviously very important and, and the most common injuries would be the hamstring injuries. And while there's probably some debate still out there on what's actually occurring at the hamstring at that moment and through ground contact, whether it's eccentric or isometric, uh, either way we know that it's, it's happening prior to ground contact where there seems to be some lengthening going on as well as maybe uh, a pre-activation of getting prepared for that ground contact. So whether that's isometric in nature, uh, there's a, a battle between lengthening and shortening, whatever the mechanism truly is, uh, it leads us to the importance of, of the isometric and eccentric contraction work in the weight room to, to try to just prepare them for that. So with sort of kind of coming back into that weekly structure in the mesocycles, the, the Monday and Thursday, a lot of dynamic effort potentiation type work is very much concentric in nature so as not to negatively interfere with those following uh, important sessions. And then on those Tuesdays and Saturdays uh, that are both followed by a, either a day off or active recovery, that's when we'll, especially the eccentric contraction, which we know to, to elicit some more muscle damage and some more fatigue, that's where we'll fit those in. So we'll start the year, particularly with the posterior chain, with isometric and, and some heavy overloaded eccentrics. And we'll progress that into some lighter, faster, as you mentioned, the, the more reflexive eccentrics, which I believe originally came from, from Verkashansky, I, I think. Um, so that's a bit of how our progression goes. We start sort of heavy and slow with some tempo eccentric and progressing, especially with the posterior chain into those faster, more reflexive types. Great stuff. 
you mentioned earlier on you've done some work with uh, some major league baseball teams um, and with some major league baseball players in terms of speed development. And I heard you touch on this in in Rob Pace's podcast, and it's, it's a question I, I want to post you here is what what are the biggest differences you see within the speed development of elite track athletes to sort of just um, non-elite track athletes, but who are still, you know, pretty high-level athletes um, with respect to their own sport? Yeah, I think, well, the, the one thing that stood out to me at first, when I, when I first started working with some of these team sport athletes, uh, it was a couple years after, after almost entirely with, with elite sprinters. Um, and I was really struggling those first few days with the team sport athletes. And I realized that I was talking to them the same way that I would talk to an elite sprinter. And I realized that that's completely the wrong way to go about it. Um, and and the, a big reason behind that being that a lot of these athletes outside of track and field have never been educated or, or never been properly or appropriately educated on sprinting on what it should look like or feel like or, or what their intent is meant to be. It, it's just, it's never been discussed for them. Uh, and I think it's maybe even exasperated in the baseball population that I've been exposed to the most, uh, their sport, as with a lot of sports, but it's it's so extremely skill-based. Uh, the throwing and the hitting that they have to do and, and tracking the balls, it's, it's a phenomenal skill that they have. Mm. And, and there's a reason that they're at the level they're at, and it's because they're very good at those skills. And so they've been able to get by with, with, without a really profound understanding of sprinting and sprint mechanics. Um, and so then I just had to change the way that I talked to them. Uh, different cues, different concepts. Maybe not different concepts, but just communicate those same concepts in a different manner and go into more detail on it. Um, so I quickly realized, and, and now it's been quite successful, in that you know, those first few sessions with new individuals, it's, it might as well be a classroom session. And, and with a couple of groups, it has been, which I really appreciated. So it's, it's not even trying to get them moving yet. It's just educate them on common myths and, and the appropriate concepts and, and what we're looking for with a true elite acceleration or sprint. And then taking them out and, and introducing those and finding the cues that will work for them and really simplifying things, looking at the big rocks that will not overload them too much cognitively, but allow for a an appropriate shift in their mechanics. It's been a really fun experience. Oh, absolutely! It's 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 great to just have that diversity. You know, I mean, to to as you were saying, you know, two years with elite track athletes, and then all of a sudden you're sort of back in with some team sport athletes, and it's kind of like, oh, this is a I gotta just you know again just the learning and growth from again because you realize as you said like the cues and 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 whatnot that you've been using with track athletes, you just couldn't. You couldn't communicate those, or you couldn't relate them to the to the team sport athletes. And it, it was like uh, for me, from when I interned, like I'd come from a world of just working with team sport athletes, and I came from also from more of a kind of just traditional S and C world, where it's track would be my background. So it, it was like the, the amount I took away and learned at Altus it was just incredible again, because I was just so so new to it all in terms of elite track performance. So I can only imagine that, like when you when you marry your experience now with the Major League Baseball guys and now with obviously with your day-to-day work with elite track athletes, I mean, it's only going to just add to your your your, your skill set and make you grow as a practitioner. Yeah, it's, it's the reason I'm, I'm really appreciative of, of my role and, and the responsibilities I've been given at Altus. Uh, it's, it's really exposed me to a lot and 
and we talked a little bit offline, but this is the reason that I wanted to come here was track and field has historically been at the forefront of a sport performance. It's very raw in nature. It's run, jump, and throw. And, and I think it sets up a lot of the, the basics for other sports. And one, one thing that I'll talk about with these team sport athletes that I work with is, is the mantra of ours at Altus is that you have to know the rules before you can break the rules. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very open with the baseball guys that I understand that your sport is different and your demands are different. And there may be times where your postures and positions may need to change and shift. But, but there's something to be said for understanding how to properly sprint in a straight line before you try to do it curvilinear or before you try to do it with, you know, reading a defensive play or whatever it may be. And so I think they appreciate the, the, the fact that I realize it's not going to be the same for them and they may need to shift it. And then they appreciate the fact that, yeah, maybe there's, there's some benefit to learning how to do it the right way before I adapt it to my situation. Yeah. One thing I really took away from, from you guys was, that concept that you know track and field really does underpin almost every sport because again like it's it, it it is the sport of sprint run throw which you know sprint run throw underpins almost every other sport out there so uh, to really have a full grasp of the fundamentals of, of track and field is uh is only going to just further you know further your ability to be a better coach no matter who your uh, physical preparation coach or strength conditioning coach. Um, no matter who the athlete is at your service. So definitely, I think uh, getting to the fundamentals of, of track and field is, is crucial for any coach who's, who's looking to really, you know, master their craft. Yeah, totally agree. So there's a, there's a few questions I know that there's probably people out there saying, oh, I hope you asked me this question. I, I want to know why did you do this or why did you do that. So hanging band technique, let's get into it. Uh-huh. Because, because so many times you see the clips on Twitter and everyone's like, why are they doing that? And look what these guys get. And, you know, again, it's kind of like people are making, you know, you know, criticisms of false assumptions. So here's a here's an opportunity now to talk to the actual from the horse's mouth, the strength and power coach at Altus, um, and ask the question: Hanging band thinking, Why do you guys use it? Uh, we use it. I kind of mentioned with with our population, they they typically have some pretty good abilities in the weight room. Hmm. Um, and and again, they don't always move the best, but but their outputs are are quite good. Um, and so the the hanging band technique is a way for us to provide a little bit more chaos into their environment, to force them into stabilizing a little bit more. And that's through those movement patterns. So we'll use it uh, typically from either an overhead press or a squat, slightly depending. This so a few variations with that, but. Both of those are going to challenge a lot of trunk and core stability, as well as some shoulder stability, really just stabilizing the movement pattern as a whole. Uh, that, that's really where we see the benefit coming from those movements. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, I mean, you can correct me on this, uh, you know, a lot of it, too, to, to get that co-contraction in around, obviously, the spine and, and hip region. Yes, 100%. And then the other piece is it, it's, it, it's almost a bit of a governor for the load. So, yeah. so where I mentioned they, they can produce some pretty high outputs, but don't really move the greatest. If we look at, uh, say a, a push press, which we'll use the hanging band technique sometimes for, uh, a lot of our population will be able to put a lot of load on that push press and their egos will, will come into play and they'll, they will try to put a lot of load on that push press, but they also don't have the best overhead position. 
So some will get extended to the spine and uh, just typical issues that the athletes will have with the overhead position. So the hanging band technique will then allow us to, to get away with some lighter loads to, to sort of govern what the loading on that bar is and, and still allow them to maintain a, a pretty good position through that movement yeah. and still get a decent bit of a challenge from that. So essentially it's, it's a self-limiting factor as well. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's another benefit to it. As much as, as much as I try to talk to these guys about, you know, the appropriate loads and, and different things when we get a group of elite sprinters in the weight room. And, and as you saw, we share a weight room with Exos, which oftentimes has a lot of, yeah, uh, a lot of, a, a lot of alpha in the room. Let's just say. Right. So it, it gets tough. And then we obviously put a lot on social media and different things. So once in a while there's a camera out there or there's an ACP course going on and we have visiting coaches from all over the world. Uh, and, and these guys like to try to put on a show. And as much as I, bang my head against the wall and try to talk to them about the importance of, of not doing anything stupid. They get caught up at times. So it, it can be a nice way to, to moderate that a little bit. Olympic lifts. I, I have to say one thing I appreciated um, while I was at Altus was this, uh, you know, it's just always this sense of this middle, like you, there's always a sense of a spectrum in Altus. There was never, it's either or, it's black or white. It's always like everything's on a spectrum. And I felt that was also your guys' view with Olympic lifts. It's like some some guys we Olympic lifts and some guys we don't. Some guys we feel can benefit, some guys we don't. Uh, we let some guys do because emotionally they need it. Some other guys we don't because they hate it. So it was kind of like there was many reasons to to, 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 to the question of to Olympic lift and not to Olympic lift. So maybe just touch into, touch into Olympic lifts and, yeah, well, you, you highlighted it quite nicely there. Um, but essentially, it's a, it's a good tool for sure, mm. but it's not the only tool to, to elicit whatever whatever adaptation you're trying to get from it, whether you're just looking globally at dynamic effort, uh, power production force, whatever you want to try to gain from Olympic lifting. There's, there's many ways to do it. Uh, I know some people will look at triple extension, and that's not really what we're looking at. But uh, maybe that's the case. But there's there's more than one road leads to, to Rome, right? Absolutely. Um, and so kind of with that being said, we do get some athletes. We'll have athletes with a training age of 10 plus years. And they may come from programs where they've power cleaned for eight years consistently. Typically, if they have, then they probably look pretty good. And typically, if they have and they've done well, they're a little bit emotionally connected to it, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, so we're not going to try to pull them away from that. Uh, if, if that's what they need to feel fast, then we're going to give that to them in a dosage that's appropriate at a time of year that's appropriate to allow them to have that connection and to feel fast. We want them being comfortable and confident, particularly through the competitive season. Uh, that being said, is, is all the benefit there is to Olympic lifting. If we have an athlete come in that's never done it before, and we may take uh, a session or two to, to introduce it and see how it goes, we don't want to put a lot of cognitive load on these athletes in the weight room. Mm. We want them thinking and, and being aware of what they're doing in the weight room, but we don't necessarily need to challenge them technically with too many foreign movements to any individual. We want to save all of that load for the track, as I mentioned, kind of you know, eliminate any potential negative interference between the two. And so we, we simply won't do it. Um, part of it comes from, from logisticals. We 
don't always have the best coach-athlete ratios in the weight room. It's much better now than it has been in years past. Uh, but we were a little bit overwhelmed in the past. And there, there's times where it's me and 40 athletes. And so if there's 40 athletes and, and 25 of them have Olympic lifting at any one given time, I can only see so many, right, and, and teach so many. Yeah. And so that's that's another factor that will come into play. So I guess in a nutshell, there's, there's definitely benefit to it, and we're not all in or all against. It's It's identifying each individual situation and seeing when and where it's appropriate. All right, this this question has to come. Franz Bosch, how how have you guys been taking some of that stuff and integrating? Because again, that's sort of a it's a big question everyone wants to ask you guys when they see some of the stuff on Twitter. Yeah, so it's um it's something that that we play with, especially via Stu and his programming uh, the last couple of years, and and I think that we're we're starting to get to a point where we're pretty comfortable with with a few of the movements and and some of the ideas. Coming from Franz Bosch, I, I think he presents a very unique way of looking at things. Um, and then it seems to, to really fit well with this population, at least some of the stuff that you've probably seen off of social media. Um, with a lot of that being around this idea of positional context, uh, something that we'll talk about a lot. And, and essentially what we're doing is trying to provide as much context as we can around the a position or a high knee position, or I think Bosch calls it the hip lock. Hip lock, yeah. So, so we're looking to to introduce our athletes to that position through different angles, different velocities, at different forces and different environments. Uh, as much variety and variability as we can around that position to get them comfortable coming in and out of that position with the ground context that they'll experience, and and again the angles. So I think there's definitely some spots where it fits and for us it started a couple of years ago as as almost a bridge between the, the weight room warm-ups and and sort of the meat of that session for lack of a better term mm. now we, we've gotten comfortable with a few of those pieces that especially on those dynamic effort days or those mondays and thursdays where we don't want to introduce too much uh fatigue for those following days to come it seems to fit very well in those slots yeah, great stuff. And you kind of just touched on another question I want to ask. In terms of weight room warm-up, so just for the listeners, uh, like the typical day uh, at Altus when I was there is we'd be out on the track, usually with the elite group around 10, 10.30, and we'd head back to the weight room 12, 12.31-ish. And I suppose what I always sort of appreciated was you always seemed to just have that perfect – sort of recipe of kind of potentiating for for the weight room but you it wasn't so much that they'd go off to another warm-up and they'll go to the weight room so maybe just speak about like what is it you do just kind of in between that end of track session to getting over to the weight room getting out of a car again and kind of making sure that you know you you're getting them potentiated for the for bit of weight room work they have to do but again you're not sort of overkilling them so what sort of protocols do you put in place there yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's a question that the athlete presents a lot, actually, because they, uh, they'll kind of bitch and moan about having to come to the weight room and do a warm-up. They say uh, their argument is that they just came from the track, <laughs> they're, that they're already warm and, and they're ready to go. But in actuality, they, they, they maybe just came from the track, but after they finish their last rep on the track, they'll typically uh, joke around for a while, jump on their phones for a little while, try to find some shade for a little while and then they'll drive over and sit in the locker room for a little while 
and, and get back on their phones for a little while and then slowly make their way back out to the, to the training floor. Something that we talk about a lot is uh, the faster the sprinter, the slower they are at walking. <laughs> so it, it usually takes quite a while for them to get from the track to their car and then from their car into the, into the weight room and from the locker room. All of it takes quite a while. So they say they just got there, but oftentimes it's as much as 30, possibly 45 minutes. And so our, our weight room warm-ups are designed uh, to introduce stability, some tension really back into the system. Mm. Everything that they do on the track um, is, in a lot of ways, we're trying to eliminate that. We want fluid movements, big shapes, uh, and, and we don't potentially want them bringing those same ideas into the weight room under load. So it's, it's a matter of tension and stability, some time under tension, uh, and then just almost tweaking it on the day based on how they're presenting. So it helps that I'm at the track every day and I can have an understanding of, of what their session was and what their outputs were. I always know what's scripted, but sometimes that's going to change. And sometimes it may be scripted to be 85% or something like that. It's never actually scripted in that manner, but that may be the idea behind it. And then somebody turns up and they're feeling really good. And maybe there's a bit of a tailwind and they end up running really fast at training that day. So then I'll have an understanding of that and I'll be able to tailor the, the warm up a little bit. So maybe we'll do, you know, anywhere from one to three sets. We have a different series of, of different warm ups that we can do and, and employ on any given day. Uh, and then sometimes it, we may bypass some of those and just go straight into some warm up sets of whatever their first exercise is. Um, that doesn't happen very often, but with a few select individuals, I know that. There's certain times where that's more appropriate. And if I can get them doing multiple warm-up sets of that first exercise, then, then we're in good shape. So it's, it's again, just around tension. It's, it's a lot of uh, sort of activation for the posterior chain and, and a way to sneak some of that in before the, the meat of the session. What would you say are some of the biggest differences, if, if any, that you see between the male and female um, athletes in, in terms of their weight room needs? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's something that I'm always trying to, to be aware of and, and really put a finger on. Um, but I think it can boil down to the, the women can typically handle a bit greater density with a bit more volume. Mm. They really don't have the, the recruitment or the output, and the, the CNS drive that a lot of the men will have. So I think that they need uh, some max strength work a little bit more often than most of the men. Uh, and then can handle a little bit more volume with a little bit less rest breaks. So if it's a max strength session, the men might be upwards of five minutes rest in between sets, where the women may be two or three. And the men may be three total sets, and the women may be four or five. So it's it's really it's really individual. It's it's tough to say that that's the case just based on gender. Yeah. Because uh, there's some men that'll fall into that category, and there's some women that won't. Um, but as a, as a general rule of thumb or a starting place, I think it's I think it's pretty fair to say that's kind of where it sits. So projection, rhythm, and rise, or some some people put those words in a different order, but I learned about projection, rhythm, and rise. Uh, I know you talked about this on Rob Pace's podcast, and I thought you did a fantastic job covering covering projection, rhythm, and rise. Can you maybe just get into these these three uh, critical concepts when it comes to acceleration and speed? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of projection rhythm and rise. 
uh, it was first introduced to me from Stu, um, maybe 18 months ago, whatever it was. And so I mentioned that I first came to Altus with a more of an SNC background. And the entire time I've been here, it's been improving and, and trying to bring up my education on the sprint side of thing side of things. But I've really noticed that that as soon as it was portrayed to me in that fashion of projection rhythm and rise, my development as a sprints coach really, really expedited uh, from that. I would be watching accelerations on any given day and there's just so much going on and these are some of the best in the world and it's, it's really hard for me to pick up on things. Um, I'm trying to watch everything and, and by fault then I'm not really watching anything. So once I, once I was introduced to projection rhythm and rise and I was able to focus on these three menu items, it really started to clear a lot of things up for me and it's something I've really held on to. Um, so kind of breaking those down and going into more detail on them, it really underpin, underpins everything that we'll do, um, both with our athletes as well as any team sport athletes that we work on. So I mentioned the education piece with those team sport athletes, and this is where it starts. And for projection, it's, it's almost twofold. So it's the angle that they're going to project out at off that initial step, as well as the idea of, of maximally projecting their hips or their center of mass horizontally through space off that first step. So a few common myths around each of those. Um, it's often believed that projecting out at a 45 degree angle is, is optimal for everybody. But that's very much dependent on probably first and foremost, first and foremost strength abilities. So stronger athletes and, and most men are going to be able to project a little bit lower than, than most women or, or just weaker athletes in general. Um, and then, so for each individual and for each race and each situation is context dependent, depending on the sport, there may be some different angles that are going to optimize it, but it's, it's a little bit foolhardy to just lock into a 45 degree angle. Then in terms of projecting the hips through space, I think a common myth there is, is short choppy steps because that's what feels fast. Uh, if you get your limbs sort of angulating at a, at a quick rate, it's going to feel quick and feel fast to the athlete, but you're really not going anywhere. So it's a matter of, of discussing that those first few steps are going to feel slow, but that's going to set the rest of it up to be fast. Mm. So so rather than short, choppy steps, we're taking some long pushes and, and really trying to get out of the hole and, and cover some ground. So what that's going to lead into then is the, the rhythm. And so with those long steps, if we think about the ground contact, there's going to be a little bit more space between those steps uh, and that ground contact. And as the velocity increases, those that time in between is going to decrease. So sometimes it's talked about in terms of a, a crescendo. But uh, hopefully, I'm going to clap here. Hopefully, it's not too loud into the mic. But if you think about the contact, and it's just going to increase gradually over time. So that's what we're talking about in terms of rhythm. And that's really how we communicate it with the athletes. You can think of a train taking, out, taking off out of the station. Mm. And it starts chugging along and chugging along and slowly increasing as it gets up to speed. And so then as we're increasing speed, then we, we bleed into the rise. And, and what we want to see is a, a shift in the kinematics as there's an increase in velocity. And so that's just a gradual rise of the center of mass and the, and the total body angle to the ground with each step. And so that may just be two to three degrees with each step, but there's going to be a shift as that velocity increases. A common myth there, I think, is is a lot of athletes staying low. Yeah. And I think this is an issue with, with breaking an acceleration or a sprint down into phases of a dry phase, transition phase, and, 
in an upright phase. Because the idea then is, is a lot of athletes will think of a dry phase and they'll think of, okay, the first 20 meters is my dry phase. So they'll stay down for 20 meters. And then at that 20 meter mark, they pop straight up. But that, that becomes much, much more difficult to hang on to the proper mechanics when you see a drastic shift in, in body angle and in kinematics. So we're just looking for that gradual rise with each step as the velocity increases to make for a holistic and a smooth build into upright mechanics. Yeah, the, the one thing I loved about projection rhythm Raisu was that each individual is going to have a unique projection rhythm rise. So, like, I mean, an obvious one is an elite track athlete. They obviously can can get into a steeper acceleration angle, and therefore, you know, their projection rhythm rise is going to look very different to, say, you know, one of those major league baseball guys you work with who, you know, they don't have the skill development and probably even the, the strength, the, the specific strength development to hit those same um, joint angles and, and body positions, and they can't therefore stay as you know applying force horizontal, or they can't get as into that into a steeper angle as an elite track athlete. And then you get the the sort of coach who's like, no, you need to be lower, you need to be lower, because look, the elite track guys they they're low and they drive. It's like, yeah, but they don't have the the capacity nor the skill to get into that position, and nor do they actually even need it because. You know, the, the sprint work is supplementary to the baseball player. It's not the other way around. But knowing no that projection rhythm rise is unique then to each individual, where it will be that two sprinters that are both track athletes or be them two athletes in two completely different sports who still need to accelerate, just knowing the sort of principles of projection rhythm rise really helps to clear up a lot of confusion, I think. Yeah, I think so as well. And, and you really hit the nail on the head with that because if you look at a 100-meter sprinter who also runs a 60 indoor, those – it's not going to be exactly the same for those different races or some people will do a 60, hundred and a 200. It's going to shift on any of those. Mm. If you look at baseball, it's going to shift. If you're just trying to, trying to get a single, or if you turn it into a double, or if you're feeling the ball in the field, maybe the short choppy steps are, are more beneficial. If you're just in the field, um, going five meters to, to feel the ball and make a play. But again, it comes back to understanding the, the concepts and the ideas. And then, Adapting and adjusting those based off of the situation. Yeah, I know. I'll, brings up. I'll go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, I was just gonna say it, it brings up the whole conversation on: is there actually a technical model, and, and if so, what do you do with it? And and some some may argue that there's not a technical model, or that there is, or maybe that technical model shifts in some people's eyes when they see Christian Coleman break the world record in the 60. Maybe that's the new model now because that's the fastest time, or or Bolt runs a, an amazingly fast 200 meter. Now we have a new model, but that that model may work for those individuals, but it's not going to work for every individual. Yeah. So while, while we do believe that there is a technical model and there's certain things and patterns and trends that that people do well that are successful, we're not trying to fit every individual into one certain model. There's a concept of bandwidth that we talk a lot about, mm. and there's certain bandwidths for each individual of where these things fit. It's just trying to optimize that at any given moment. You took you took the word right out of my mouth. I was, I was literally just about to say the word bandwidth there, but you know you, you covered exactly what I was going to just say there perfectly. And and I was about to just say there, um, you know, I was definitely guilty too of sort of like taking the the technical model of a track athlete too literal and trying to apply that to a team sport athlete, not realizing that you know that you can't use the same distribution of a linear sprint from elite track athlete and then 
put that literally to a team sport app because again, the track athlete has you know such a different uh, skill set when it comes to the actual physical capacity and skill development of accelerating versus a team sport athlete who doesn't have that same physical capacity um, or skill set to execute the, a linear sprint similar to or in a, in a very same way to the elite track athlete. So again, learning sort of projection rhythm rise and, and then learning that you know each individual is going to have a, a sort of unique uh, distribution of their acceleration into their transition into their um, top end speed was, was a very important thing that I learned and I suppose Cam, Cam Josh, uh, Cameron Josh from the Frankos who I know you're very good friends with and I've had in the podcast before like I mean he, he was uh, he, he spoke um, at Altus back in December and again another fantastic presentation on the 360 platform um, and he was saying that some of the top NFL guys they were hitting like max velocity I think like after 20 meters or 25 meters or 30 meters or something like that whereas like you know yeah. an elite track athlete doesn't usually hit max velocity until 60 or you know even some have even uh, been shots on hit until 70 meters but like uh, so like that's a huge difference in terms of a technical um, a technical execution. So, like, you get one athlete who's hitting their max velocity or very close to max velocity within like 20, 25, 30 meters, and then an elite track athlete's not hitting it like for another like 100% of that. <laughs> you know, so if someone's hitting it at 30 meters and the track athlete's not hitting it for full 60, like, that's a big difference. So, you can't take those, take, take the track athlete or take the track model completely literally and say, no, you have to hit these exact angles because this is what they do in track and field. But again, knowing sort of the principles of projection rhythm rise, as we spoke about, I think really helps kind of clear up that confusion and say, oh, I see where I was going wrong there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great point you mentioned. There's, there's really big differences on, on when they reach those velocities and then subsequently on what the rhythm rise and projection will need to be to get there. And, and an obvious one too is um, like an obvious sort of nearly answer to that was like, look at the difference between the elite male track athletes and elite female athletes. The elite females have a different different distribution to their 100 meter than than the, the males did. Like they, they usually uh, hit their um they usually uh, hit their max velocity sooner because they can't accelerate for as long as the males. And again, that's because different physical capacities, different body structures. So it's like, oh, well, then it's obvious that's going to be different if you're trying to apply this to team sport athletes. Exactly, and, and you can look at it off the first step in the projection angle. You'll see a lot of the women projecting higher, yeah, or well, I, probably high forties, maybe with the men. You know, maybe thirty-eight to forty-two degrees. Yeah, yeah. And so, if that's the angle that you're starting at, and you're increasing that rise of the of the total body angle by uh, two to three degrees with each step, they're obviously going to get upright a little bit sooner. Sooner, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, all right, so we're wrapping up here. One one, uh, one question I want to ask, and then I'm going to get some of the, the quicker fire ones. Uh, you've, been, right. you've been playing around with the 1080 sprints, so maybe tell us how you know how the 1080 sprint come about and how how you find it. Uh, how's the experiment been going so far? Yeah, it's it's been it's been really fun. It's uh, quite a piece of equipment. Um, and maybe so Jay, just knows. yeah, sorry, I was just going to say just for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, just fill us in on that, Jay. Yeah, so just just briefly on, on what it's all about, um, it's a uh, it's a machine that will allow you to go resisted and assisted um, with sprinting. It's really you can do any movement off of it beyond sprinting. They also have a, a 1080 quantum that goes in the weight room uh, that you can get really fancy with. Unfortunately, we don't have one of those. We're just playing with a sprint machine now, um, and we're just playing with the resisted portion. But what it'll provide us then is the ability to 
be very particular and really fine-tune the resistance that we're going to use off that. In addition, it will record uh, some power, velocity, uh, force, and, and time measurements off of whatever distance we choose to, to measure. Uh, it's a core that will go out to 90 meters, so that's very nice. Uh, and it's quite portable as well. So it's, it's really a great machine um, that we started playing with in the fall with our resisted acceleration days. Uh, JB Marin and, and Pierre Simazino, there's a few, Matt Cross, a lot of guys are doing a lot of interesting work around force application and sprinting and, and very heavy sled sprinting and finding that, you know, we can and, and maybe we should be loading these resisted accelerations between 50 and 100% body weight. Uh, that'd be equivalent of a sled load on turf to see some really great adaptation in, in horizontal force application mm. because it's that mm. vector that, be, that seems to be a little bit more important than necessarily the magnitude. And so the 1080 sprint for us allows the athletes to really feel that horizontal force production. It allows them to spend a little bit more time in those positions. So again, with the idea of positional context, to, it, it allows them to push out a little bit lower and climb a little bit slower so they can really feel that and hang on to it. Uh, I think the big argument from there is, is a lot of people think if you load these guys up quite so heavily, you see such a shift in, in the technical execution, that there's some negative carryover from that. But I would argue, so if we look at uh, a weekly setup for us and the amount of accelerations our athletes do, uh, unresisted versus heavily resisted. The heavy resisted accelerations are less than 10% of their weekly repetition mm. of an acceleration. Mm. And, I, and I really don't feel that that's, that's anywhere close to enough to, especially with an athlete of, of the magnitude that we have with the training age that they have. If you look at that number, that ratio uh, throughout their career, it's probably 2%. Just it's it's just a guess, but I'm sure it's somewhere along those lines. And so I don't think that you're going to see enough of a of a carryover transference from that to really be concerned about it. We're only doing a couple accelerations a week, uh, depending on the time of year. Right now, we're not doing any that are that heavy. We have loaded guys up to right over just around 100% body weight, um, and and nothing but good things to say about it. It's, it's been phenomenal. We're in the process still of figuring out exactly what we want to track off of it and how we want to use the data that it provides us. Um, so you kind of touched on it at the beginning, but I'm going to put out a series of articles sort of highlighting that process. Um, and it's going to be, my hope is for that to be very transparent and, and very open and honest because it's, it hasn't been the smoothest of, of transitions. Uh, we don't necessarily have the resources at the time or the, even the expertise, quite honestly, um, for myself to really handle that sports science side of things and all the data that it's going to provide us. And, and a big piece of it is, is us being able to seamlessly integrate it into the training environment. So that's where we started at the beginning of the year is not so worried about the data collection and just trying to get comfortable uh, with us using the machine and with the athletes using the machine. And fortunately that went pretty quickly and we're playing with different loading parameters and schemes. And now we're, Kind of at the point where we'll re retroactively go back and look at some of the data off of from the fall, and and I'll spend the summer trying to design some ideas around how we want to better utilize it next season to really pull something out of it and, and potentially start drawing some conclusions from it. 
Are you getting that noise through the sounder as well, or is that just me? There was a there was a little bit of um okay. yeah something going. Okay. On. E e e yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, hopefully it's not too bad. Anyway. But come here. What so what days are you putting the the ten eighty um the like what days of the week are you utilizing ten eighty as on those potentiation days? So we we played with it a bit on the Mondays on on potentiation, and sometimes that's accelerations, and sometimes that's uh, resisted skipping or bounding. Mm. Um, and then we've also Put it a little bit on the Thursdays as well, uh, when we want a little bit more work out of it on a Thursday. Uh, you were saying that JB, and I heard Cam talk about this, but you were saying JB was using loads up to 50% body weight? Uh, they're, they're going to, so uh, a big piece of theirs and, and uh, the work they're doing with it, and I I hate to say this stuff secondhand because I haven't spoken with JB directly, so take it for what it's worth, but what I can gather is, is what they're doing is taking the the load velocity profiling from the machine that it'll provide you, and if you look, if you cut it into uh, between 48 and 52 percent of the theoretical max velocity, mm. you can then find the the load that will elicit um, power max. Yeah, power max. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. a big piece of theirs is is finding the the accordion load to produce power max and training at that spot. Yeah, I think um, I think I, I think I think Cameron was saying that like if you could run ten meters per second, so it meant five meters then per second was your was your was 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 the the velocity you'd be going at for your power max. That, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and so for for I think for team sport athletes, they were finding between uh, I think about sixty five and ninety percent body mass. Hmm. Um, for the for the resisted load, and then for a sprint population, it was like seventy to ninety five, so it was something a little bit higher for sprint population. Cool, cool. yeah, it would be interesting to, as I said to you offline and unsaid uh, to you as well online. And um, at the start, I'm I'm interested to see like how you get on with ten eighty and, and the the article series that you're hopefully going to put out. But uh, yeah, I'm working on this one right now, so hopefully that's out in uh, in a week or two and. Cool, cool. And hopefully, hopefully people like it. Yeah, I'll definitely stick those in the show notes for sure. So uh, when, I, when I see those, I'll definitely put them in when we put this podcast out. So, Jay, just wrapping up a few uh, few questions that, again, I like to wrap up every podcast with. And, uh, again, just love getting all the guests' um, insights into these questions. So starting off with the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your career. And also, you know, I, I, I've expanded this into your life. So what would you say would be the biggest things you've learned so far in your life and your career? Uh, I would say, so it's kind of the same, the same answer for both. Um, and, and the first thing that I think of is, is just being a good person really. And, and that probably sounds cliche and, no, and stupid no, maybe, no. but um, I, I really believe that I, I, got offered the job with Altus uh, after my internship because I, a lot of it was timing and, and they needed some extra help because the, the business was growing. But a lot of it was, uh, I was able to, I think, relate to a lot of the athletes and the staff and get along with people. And, and uh, what I th essentially think it came down to was that like, they didn't mind being in my company. Mm -hmm. So I think just, just, being a good person, getting along with people, trying to relate to people, uh, genuine caring and understanding and, and solid conversations. Uh, I think that stuff goes such a long way. 
And and so, you know, that's that's why I'm here and that's why I'm trying to maximize the opportunity that I have here with Altus and, and to try to not squander that because I think that's kind of how it all started and where it came from. Well, I can personally uh, attest to that because uh, you were nothing but a, a pure gent to me during my time at Altus. So uh, I really appreciated you being a, a cool human being. Yeah, I appreciate that, Robbie. Uh, so next question, um, in in terms of your top resources, now they, these can be anything. They don't they don't have to be um, just limited to um, physical preparation or strength conditioning or track. They can be anything. But in terms of your top resources, uh, what would you say would be your top resources? It could be books, courses, um, you know, podcasts, whatever it is. What what would your top resources be for any listeners out there? For me, it's for me, it's the network, um, and and that's easy for me to say because I've I've again been afforded a great opportunity to come into a, a really large network of a really successful practitioners from all around the world. Mm. Um, so, admittedly, it's something that I need to do a better job of taking advantage of. But personally, I think I get more out of uh, you know these conversations with with guys like Matt Jordan and, and Ian McEwen and different practitioners around the world, and, and coming on these podcasts just and email exchanges with Camp Joss. It's, it's those things that I think I really get a lot of, um, really retain a lot of, a lot out of. Probably at this point more so than, than books or courses or, or anything else yeah. for that matter. Yeah. I will take this opportunity to plug a couple of, of Altus initiatives that you sort of mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. I think the foundation course and the Altus 360 are, are two great ones. Um, online course to, to go at, at your own pace as well as just a huge video library in Altus 360 with a, with a plethora of, of resources yeah, there. You, you, you'll, never, you'll never get your 360. It's just that it's a monster. So the, the amount of material information there, you, if, if you were literally to go through that, it would probably take you a good solid two years in terms of actually going through it and then actually like digesting all the information on it. It's just phenomenal. And also the fact that there's new information put up every single month and like it's not like just like oh a uh, uh, one new video goes up one it's like fucking like ten new hours of content goes up it's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 really grown into to quite the piece. And as you mentioned, the the presentations from the apprentice coach, coach programs go on there, um, and so that's that's a great addition to it to to keep it fresh and to keep it live every month to, and, to be able to add. And and, and and as me and you spoke with the projection rhythm rise and, and some of the concepts that all of us have learned from Stu there. There's one presentation from Stu on acceleration that he did at the track and track and football consortium, Tony Hollers and, and uh, Chris Corfus's um, conference that they that they put on twice a year, and it's up on 360. And that alone is like worth the yearly subscription. That presentation is phenomenal. I, I totally agree. I've I've watched that one a few times, um, and and I still pull something new out of it every time. Oh, so. every time. And and there's there's these two as well from Dan that are on there. There there there's when he spoke to at the Canadian. Uh, coaches center it's the it, i think i think their calls is a, is a strength and power for speed or something like that or i'd have to read it again they actually used to be on youtube years ago but they were taken down but they're up in 360 there's part one and part two like and i've i've literally watched them i, I first came across the audios of them in 2010 and between 2010 and now between audio and actually watching those lectures over and over again i must have watched them about uh, and listen to them about 20 times or more and just like you said I pull something new every time it was the first time I heard the terms like actualization stabilization and like just things like that like and stuff he was talking about like and it was just like 
this guy is unbelievable. And that presentation's up on 360, so it's, I, I go back and watch it all the time. Yeah, that's great. Dan, Dan's a special guy, that's for sure. Uh, and as you mentioned, the foundation course, like I currently, uh, like I'm currently doing my master's actually, so I've kind of been dipping in and out of, of the foundation course. I haven't been able to give like full focus because as I'm doing my master's with Mary's, but the the bits I have dipped into, it's just been absolutely phenomenal. And it's it's so funny because I can parallel it to my master's, and I'm like, this foundation course is like, is basically as good, if not better, than my master's, except it's like ten times less costly. <laughs> So I'm like, this the information on it is phenomenal. And the way, as I said to you offline, like the way you guys structured it in terms of the lectures, the the written content I think is beautifully put together. There's no like long, drawn out, boring video. It's all really, really to the point, well done. And then I love the quizzes at the end because they make you have to consolidate what you've just learned. So at the end of every sort of module or, or like every like section within a module, you're like, right, what, what, what did I really learn there? What have I taken away from this? And like you're forced to do that with the little quizzes because you don't get onto the next level unless you you pass that little quiz. So I think the way you guys structure it too is just is just phenomenal. And again, the cost is like so cheap, like really for for such a quality course. Like, and I know there's gonna be people listening. Oh God, like this guy's like selling this because you know he's got Jay from Altasound. But I'm like, I don't care. Like, I, it, it it absolutely is a quality quality resource and. Uh, some, something that you guys should be and I know that you are very proud of so uh, it's f- uh, fantastic yeah I appreciate that feedback and, and I feel the same way I just you know it's tough for people to hear from me because I'm obviously a little bit biased but with all the outside resources that are included into it and, and guest contributors uh, I think it's it turned out to be a very well-rounded and, and informative piece I think absolutely all right so we've done we've done the, the biggest lessons in our life we've, we've done the resources Last two questions though is what would your top advice be to any of the listeners? Um, and again, this can be advice, you know, any any type of advice it could be life advice, coaching advice, can be both life and coaching advice. What would your what would your top advice be, Jay? Man, that's a good question, Robbie. I knew this was coming too. I should have uh, I should have been more prepared for it. Um, I, I would say just just be a genuine person. Uh, and and again, that's both in in life and in coaching. I think there's a lot of parallels, but. It's something that I always try to do, particularly with with my coaching, because everybody's going to pick up on if you're not being genuine. Uh, you you saw you spent some time with me out here. I'm not a big scream, yell in your face kind of typical weight room guy. I shouldn't say typical, but but what a lot of people think of when when they think of a strength coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's in, and there's been times in my career where I've felt that I needed to be that way or even tried to be that way, but it's it's plainly obvious that it just comes off as as an act and, and kind of fake. And and I think just by being genuine, you get so much more out of that and you can motivate people so much better and, and create much longer lasting connections. So it's just identifying kind of who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and then just being genuine from there. Beautiful. Love it. Great answer. So the final big one, we're going to dinner and I have my magic powers with me and I say, Jay, where you can invite five people to dinner tonight, dead or alive, because I have the magic powers. Who are you going to invite to this dinner and why? Man, Robbie, you're good with this. This is why you're a good podcast host. <laughs> uh, five people. Dead or alive now. It can be anyone. It can be anyone. All, all I ask is that you give me five people, because the last few people have been like, oh, I can't now. I'm like, come on. Just and It doesn't matter. Because you can change your answers later anyway. Oh, yeah. You can, yeah. Yeah. 
So and my answer would probably, if you asked me in a, an hour later, it would probably change. But um, I'm going to throw in uh, – so I'm going to throw in Fergus Connolly because I'm reading his book right now. Cool. And, uh, cool. and, and I haven't spoken with him. But I think it would be fun to, to have a chat while I'm in his book. Nice. I'm also going to throw in Dr. Andrew Huberman, who just came down. Nice. Uh, so nice. I just spoke with him last week, but I, I really enjoyed his talk. And that's going to go up on 360 soon. Uh, he's a, a researcher out of Stanford doing some really interesting stuff. Um, around neuroplasticity and, and fear and anxiety. Uh, so those will be kind of the two more training-related. Um, if we go from there, uh, John Boyd, who, who kind of developed and popularized the, the OODA loop, um, is something I've been reading about a little bit recently. Uh, so an old military guy. Yeah, Throw him in. yeah jo John Boyd, he was an aviator. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny you mention him because I was only at a presentation with Ian Jeffries and he mentioned John Boyd. He had the uh, what was the what, what was the, the model he came up with? Observe what was it? Observe. Uh, uh, observe. Orient, side and act. That's it. Say it again for me. Say say the four things again. Observe, orient, decide, and act. act. That's it. Yeah, that's so that's so random that you mentioned him because the first time I ever heard about him was like two weeks ago. Sorry, that's mad. Just this is mad. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, Robert Greene, a, a huge fan of his books. Oh yes, sir. Yes, me too. Mastery, absolutely love it. Yeah, I think I think that would be fun to to kind of pick his brain a little bit. That's great. But we have one more. So we so so far we have Fergus, we have Dr. Huberman, uh, we have um, John Boyd, and we have Boyd, yeah. and we have Robert Greene. So who's who's the last one? Yeah, I feel like I feel like this is man. This is tough. This is tough, but I'm going to give you a fifth one. Give me one second. I appreciate it. See, I we're going to go with, sorry, we're going to go with, with Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, yes, sir. Big PR. Got to get some of pass in there, and I, and I think I think he could bring in some good perspective. Um, he'll, for sure, he, for sure. He'll, he'll, he'll start wrestling with people, so he will. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that could be a, a fun chat. I think we could talk about sport and life and, and – Carry over to military and, and a bunch of different pieces. There, oh so. man, that's a, that's a fantastic, fantastic uh, dinner. I'm looking forward to that. So I, am. Uh, I have a big bill on my hands, but uh, anyway, I invited you. So uh, that'd be great. Next thing is we need to decide where we're gonna have the dinner. That's all. I'll let you pick that one. <laughs> all right. Might do a, might do like a, a home grill or like a, a barbecue. That's what we'll do. We'll do a barbecue out next house. There you go. There you go. Right about a, a little poolside chat. A little poolside chat. Put it up in 360. There you go, people. <laughs> All right. So, Jay, this is actually fantastic. As I say to everyone, stay online. Um, when I wrap up, and I'll, I'll say my goodbye to you offline. But uh, this is absolutely fantastic, my man. Really appreciate it. That was, uh, I think, an hour and 15 or almost to an hour and 20. Um, absolute golden content. And, uh, Listen, I, I really appreciate the the content and information that not only Alta's putting out, but as I said to you before uh, before we got online, you're putting out some fantastic articles there lately um, on Simply Faster, and also you have you have one on Simply Faster, don't you? Yeah, there's um one on acceleration on Simply Faster yeah. is fairly recent, and then a little bit on the Altus website. And then the, the ones on and actually have I have the Altus some of the ones on Altus looking at me right now. So the one on Altus that I really enjoyed that you put out there at the end of last year was the um. The strength, uh, strength Training Programming, which is the actual title of it, in November 29, 2017. That was fantastic. So I'm going to link that as well to the show notes. So 
I really appreciate everything I've seen. Really appreciate what you're doing, and just to say this publicly as well, I really appreciate it. Um, really appreciate, really appreciate the time I spent with you when I interned at Altus. Uh, you know, you're as people can obviously pick up on during this conversation. You're a top class bloke, fantastic human being, and uh, definitely, definitely uh, grateful that we, you know, we, we built a friendship while I was there. I, I can't thank you enough for having me and all you do for the field and 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 listening this information around and. And some of those conversations that we had on the on the infield, uh, kind of this time last year, still stick with me, and it was, it was a really enjoyable uh, journey for me as well. Uh, thanks, man, brother. As, as I said, the, the the money in the check is in the mail to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be on the lookout. <laughs> All right, so guys, absolutely fantastic episode with Jason Hedler. Make sure you check out Altus. I'll have all that linked up into the show notes. As you know, actually, I promote the Altus Three Sixty and the Foundation Course. Um, on each podcast because they're just our top class resources so that all that's going to be in the show notes and make sure you check out the articles that I'm going to put up from Jay in the show notes as well and uh, follow them on Twitter follow them on Facebook again I'll link all that up but for now guys take care uh, talk to everyone very soon be well and as I said at the end of each show stay strong